Welcome to another episode of The Casual Martial Artist with your hosts, Al and Marcus. So, how are you doing today, Marcus? Pretty good. You, man? Not too bad. And actually, you know, very excited because this is actually going to be a special episode. We, For a first time on this show, we actually have a guest here. And not just any guest. We've got a man known for busting faces, breaking hearts, and breaking ankles. And if you piss him off, he will lay the smack down on your ass, take you on a drive down Jabroni Lane. So... What you gonna do when Chad Knight comes to wrestle you? <laughs> Good evening. <clears throat> I don't know if I'm all that, but um, you know, you could have at least added a bag of chips on that. I mean, okay, and 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 you're a bag of chips too. How does that sound? There you go. Now we're talking. <laughs> okay. So today's episode is a little different as we got a three-way dance of death as we talk about professional wrestling and martial arts so i was actually surprised to find that this went back a little further than i thought it did so um and i know marcus you had some uh when we were preparing for this episode a while ago you had some information that you shared with me and um you were mentioning something that Vern Gagne actually taught his uh guys in the awa how to shoot right um and he also had billy robinson who was a uh, um wrestler from England trained in the Lancashire catch wrestling style that taught them like, like the basics, how to protect themselves in the ring in case some guy tried to, to shoot on them in the ring. Okay. And yeah, and I've heard, I mean, I've heard a lot of different stories about Vern Gagne over the years. Uh, have either of you uh, ever read um, Mick Foley? I think he, did he do like one or two biographies? God, I think it's up to three and maybe like three or four kids books. Okay, because I, I thought I remember uh, a friend of mine was telling me he read one of um, Foley's autobiographies. I I think I don't know if it was Foley is good or, or what's the first one like Have a Nice Day or something like that. Yeah, I think it was called Have a Nice Day. Yeah, and he was saying that uh, I think it was Marty Janetti. He they were driving to some match and he was you know just making fun of and of poor Vern Gagne and you know ripping on him and like quoting different things he would say except substituting the word wrestling with f***ing so but like you call that f***ing you want to get i'll get in this ring with you young man and i'll show you f***ing and it's like he was saying yeah they, they were laughing so hard they had to pull over and, and stop so you know some of the best wrestling stories don't happen in the ring they happen in between the shows because these guys i mean less well not really if you work for the wwe you still travel you still work like 300 days a year, which, you know, doesn't sound like a lot until you figure out there's only 365 days a year. So that means you basically work for 10 months out of the year, like on the road. So you're not yeah. home for 10 months out of the year. I mean, it's one thing. We all work our, our day jobs, you know, and we work our five days a week or six days a week or whatever. But I get to go home almost every night. I mean, I do do I do do some traveling, <laughs> but it's minimal compared to what they do. You said doo-doo. Yeah, I know. Okay, I'm trying to get the adolescent uh, worked out of my system here. So. <laughs> well, we're going to be talking about wrestling. How much? How much more adolescent can you get? I don't know. Honestly, I think it really depends. Because, uh, Marcus, I don't know. Did you ever think of uh, wrestling as more adolescent? or? Because uh, I guess for me it really kind of depends what era we're talking about. So what do you think? 
Also depends on what company and what country you're talking about. Because the com the companies I watch in Japan, um, they seem to have like a, they take it more like a sport than they do uh, sports entertainment like we do in this country. Well, and I think in Japan and Mexico, it's more shoot wrestling than than story stylized, you know, wrestling. So, yeah, they're just trying to put more, put on a good match as opposed to, uh, yeah, because I know that's one of the things that can be kind of convoluted about some of the storylines you'd see in WCW and WWF. It's like, you know, if they're referring to an event that happened in a match like three months ago, and it's like, at that point, who really cares? <laughs> yeah. You know, I found it, I, I found it to be very, uh, um, mentally awakening i until recently i never watched anything but american wrestling i mean i started with awa in the 80s and then that of course turned into wcw and i was a i was a legit wcw fan until the day it folded so my idea was where everybody else was watching wwe and then they'd flip over to watch wcw during the commercial breaks i was just the opposite I would watch WCW and flip over and see what was going on in the, especially during the Attitude Era, mm -hmm. because programming then for WWF was actually, in all honesty, now in, in, in a look back retroactive kind of way, much better than what WCW was giving us, except for the NWO. And when I, and, and I guess I have to kind of say with the NWO, it's early NWO because after a while that got kind of bloated and out of hand too but um and then i went and i actually didn't watch wrestling for like four years from like 2001 to 2005 because i was just so upset that wwe had bought wcw and put them out of business though again in retrospect wcw was going out of business regardless of who bought it they i mean they, they were not financially sound at that time they were um with, with some of the deals they had made with wrestlers and stuff they were just financially bankrupt but um recently i've gotten into watching certain things like new japan which isn't super easy but i do it with youtube and things like that so i'll watch a match here and i'll watch you know that you know that kenny omega match or that match or whatever but i find that the audience is a lot more respectful of what's going on in the ring it's like they don't even clap they don't yell they just kind of sit there and watch it's like they are into it and the wrestlers, too, you don't have a lot of run-ins. I mean, it's a huge storyline thing in New Japan when somebody actually runs in and interferes in a match. So I find that to be kind of refreshing because it's actually about the wrestling. And then, like I was saying, there's AEW, uh, which is a brand-new promotion here in the United States, though. They're kind of meshing American wrestling with something like a New Japan Um Stats are going to count. At least they, that's what they're saying at this point. So far, they've only had two pay-per-views, and they they were both um, well-received and very good. From what I've read about them and seen of them, I, I'm not dropping $50 for a pay-per-view anymore. I'm just not doing it. <laughs> when I get the WWE Network for $10 a month, and that includes my pay-per-views. But anyway, AEW, uh, they've, got a, they've got a TV deal that's coming out here pretty soon. They're going to be on TNT, so... You know, and, and everybody seems to be jumping to AEW, so that's kind of a cool thing. But I know we want to focus a little bit on, like, wrestlers that have a martial arts or a, a, an ultimate fighting background, so we can do that as well. 
And I'm just babbling now, so I will uh, step aside here and let somebody else talk. I said, Marcus, this is what I have to deal with on my podcast sometimes. <laughs> so, okay, yeah, Marcus, why don't you All tell us? I'm, gonna say, Al, I'm just going to remind you about the uh, the episode you did on Musically Challenged, and then you can stop arguing. Touche. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Marcus, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background with how you first became interested in professional wrestling and, you know, give you some thoughts and stuff about, uh, you know, your, about when, you know, as you grew as a wrestling fan. I was born in Fort Worth, Texas and lived there until I was seven. So I was exposed to Fritz von Erich's territory with the whole von Erich brothers thing. And these cats were as popular as the Dallas Cowboys were back in the seventies. And that was saying something because, you know, back then the Dallas Cowboys were huge. You know, I went to go see them in a couple of shows, and um, then we moved here, and I got exposed to Fitz of Eric's territory, or rather, Vern Gagne's territory, and uh, the style of wrestling that was done here. And um, then WWF, when it came on TV in the early 80s, that's, you know, so I had all three to compare. And I get, like Chad, I quit watching wrestling for a long time until the late 90s when... Um, you know, you had the Luchadors and the Cruiserweight division, and you had Ultimo Dragon, um, Billy Kidman, all those uh, lighter weight guys who would wrestle on WCW. And I watched it till about 2001, so yeah. And then I got interested in the Japanese style, so I've been watching Japanese wrestling pretty, pretty regularly since the late 90s. Yeah, no, with the WCCW, which uh, that was the Von Eric promotion, I think, Mm-hmm. One of the things I remember, I always remember about them, and I didn't see that particular promotion very often. But one of the things that I saw they had, which I don't think a lot of other promotions had, is they had a six-man cha- tag championship. Where, you know, I mean, it wasn't unusual for occasionally other promotions they do their six-man tag team events, but WCCW is the only one I remember that actually had a dedicated six-man tag championship um so the yeah the von erics i know they were in it and what was it because didn't they have like one of their finishers like the triple drop kick or something like that mm-hmm. so that i always thought that looked cool but didn't get a chance to see much wccw uh now as far as me i don't remember exactly how i started i because i remember when i was younger my i think it was my mom she was actually Kind of liked the AWA. Uh, she always liked Vern Gagne. And so that's where I started. But, you know, some of the kids at school, they were they would talk about WWF. And I would sometimes watch the, you know, the WWF uh, Saturday night's main event. And then when we eventually got cable, uh, they had something on, I think it wasn't, wasn't Monday night. They had, like, something with, like, it was Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby Heenan that were the host of that and because what i always and then occasionally just flipping through the channels sometimes i would get like i would happen to stumble upon some of the smaller promotions if they happen to have a um if they happen to have a program on on cable other than that when i was growing up it was primarily you know wwf awa and then uh nwa before they switched over to wcw so uh, and we had the fortune to go see some of the re- the live events. Uh, the AWA always put on good house shows. Uh, the WWF ones were usually pretty cool too. Um, but yeah, I got out of it for a while because uh, 
I know some of my friends have said that usually the 80s, they called it action figure wrestling, where it was more, it was a bit more focused on those child family friendly gimmicks. Because remember, we had Hulk Hogan telling us to say our prayers, eat our vegetables and, you know, get our exercise. And uh, yeah, they would. And I mean, wrestling was just everywhere back then, because I know, Chad, we've talked about, uh, remember Hulk Hogan, Marcus, do you remember Hulk Hogan's rock and wrestling cartoon? I do. So did you ever watch much of that show, or was it just something that you just kind of flipped by? Or um, That was about the time I started getting bored with wrestling, when it came to showing. And so I flipped by it, yeah. Yeah, because I think I fell out of it, and I fell out of wrestling in, like, about the late 80s. Uh, didn't, and I got back into it maybe around the same time you did. I think it was about 96, maybe 97, mm-hmm. because I moved in with a, a new roommate in college and well actually before i moved in with him you know i would sometimes stop by his his room and they would watch wrestling so i slowly started to get back into it and i remember watching wcw the first event i saw it's like there was macho man randy savage in there and i'm like i always remembered him from the wwf so that was kind of a culture shock to see him there so so now that we know a little bit about wrestling or at least how we all started to get into wrestling. Uh, when we talk about martial arts, it seems that, I mean, really the 90s is when we started to see more, at least as far as I know, that's when we started to see more martial arts integrated into wrestling. Because if we go back to the 80s, the only wrestler I can remember by name that seemed to regularly incorporate any kind of martial arts was maybe Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. And I think for a while, Larry Zbysko, while in the AWA, had a guy dressed as a ninja as a tag team partner. Mr. Saido, I believe, was a uh, martial artist also. What's that? Mr. Saido, uh, when he got arrested with Campetera, I believe he was um, he knew martial arts. Okay. And yeah, and back in that era, I would say Tito Santana probably as well. Hmm. See, because I didn't so, really. Uh, I don't really recall Tito Santana using a lot of martial arts type maneuvers, but yeah, I mean, he could have, I mean, it's been so long. He used a lot of hand strikes if I remember correctly, but I could be wrong. Yeah. And, and I guess when we talk about strictly martial arts gimmicks, those are the ones I remember mostly from the eighties, but it seemed you saw a little bit more of that as we did move into the nineties. What would be your guess as to why we didn't really start to see many of these martial arts type gimmicks until later? Cause there were probably some in the 70s. I mean, I'm not really familiar with the... I mean, you guys probably know more about wrestling during the 70s than I do. Like I said, I hardly remember anything of it, and I never really looked much into that particular era of professional wrestling. I mean, as far as the 70s go, uh, I was four when they ended. So, um, I... and. I started watching wrestling in the early 80s, but it was as more of a, because we spent a lot of time at my grandparents, and my grandparents were in the wrestling. So it wasn't so much as watching it as being just around it. Okay. Now, if you ever, uh, what about you, Marcus? Are you familiar with that particular uh, era in wrestling? Or was, again, is that something that, I mean, obviously we both of, all three of us would be too young to actually really truly understand it, but I was just wondering if maybe, as the years progressed, if you maybe went back and saw some, like, you know, looked up some old matches from that time or just read about that particular period? 
late seventies and early eighties, usually um, it was like a, a, a kind of racial kind of thing. They'd bring a Japanese wrestler to be a bad guy, and he'd usually have the the martial arts gimmick. Because I remember in Texas, they had this cat named the Great Kabuki. Uh, he would spit the yellow dust out into people's faces, and uh, he would do a lot of martial arts moves. And every once in a while, you had another wrestler who would the he would be the heel, and the face coming up against him would be you know for their gimmicks and their promos, they would show them practicing martial arts moves because that's how they were going to um, fight them. So that's about all the martial arts that we got. Yeah, because I know during the 80s, the whole hostile foreigner gimmick was was everywhere, especially, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Russians um, almost. I mean, it was very rare to see someone build from Russia as being a, a face back then. And and Iran as well, because, you know, of course, you remember two of the greatest heels, I think, of uh, of the 80s, Nikolai Volkov and the Iron Sheik. The axis of evil. Yeah. Though, actually, you know, even back then, it's like they almost seemed, to me anyway, in my young mind, they almost seemed more comical than sinister. Well, they had to. They they had to keep it family friendly. Um and, you know, especially in the early 90s when the Iron Sheik really became the bad guy. I mean, Sergeant Slaughter went to the Iron Sheik's, you know, he went to that, that whole thing where he's an ex-American patriot. It was horrible timing for the gimmick, which is why it didn't last very long. Because I think he turned and he kind of made that heel turn and then we went to Kuwait. So it was kind of like, yeah, oops. <laughs> I'd like to be a fly on the wall and just say, what the heck were you guys thinking when you turned someone that has always been pitched as this super patriotic wrestler? You know, and I don't know if they pitched him as being, you know, if they build him as being like a former Marine drill sergeant or something like that. But yeah, how could you, Army, that would be, yeah. how that would be like taking, you know, Hulk Hogan back then and having him come to the ring where you know with the waving the russian flag and and wearing red it's like yeah that would not go over well you saw how badly it went over when they finally did turn hogan heel i mean he had messed with it he had gone kind of gray a few times throughout his career but he had never really went full-fledged heel until he became the third man in the nwo and it was just like i mean the night that happened I was watching that pay-per-view. I think it was Bastard at the Beach in 96, I think it was. Yeah. And, I mean, they literally, the audience didn't know what to do. They just started throwing things. There was bottles and beer and just people were throwing nachos. I mean, whatever they could get their hands on, they were whipping at Hogan because he was now this bad guy that had turned his back on everything that Hulkamania stood for. You know, could you imagine how much more amplified that would have been if they would have, if you'd come out being like a backer of Russia? Yeah. So, Marcus, do you remember your reactions when you first, now I don't know if you were into wrestling around that time, uh, might be a little bit before when you, sounds like when you first started to get back in. What was your reaction when you found out Hogan was, had turned heel? I actually thought it was a few years too late. I thought he should have turned heel mm-hmm, way earlier than that. Yeah, so I, do, my, my personal thought was it's about time. Right. So you think that the whole Hulkamania, uh, you know, real American type gimmick that had pretty much run its course and it gotten old? Yeah. Yep. yeah. You could tell. You could tell if you go back and watch those those matches and things before before he left the WWF and went to WCW and did the heel turn, because the WWF would have never let him do the heel turn. 
but before that, if you just watch the crowd, it's just a bunch of blank faces. And if you really want to know how good a match is or isn't, watch the audience. They will yes. tell you how good it is. Yes, and we'll, when we talk about WWS Brawl for All uh, later on, you'll you'll we'll definitely uh, you know hear about the audience reactions. So, but you're gonna bring that steam and pile up. I think it's you know I think it's relevant to the topic though. How much you want to say it's relevant to martial arts is gonna be a little bit up for debate, but we'll get there. Um, so yeah, because okay. I remember shortly after I started watching wrestling, that's when I remember it, you did start to see more people who had martial arts type gimmicks at least in the wcw and i wonder if that's because eric bischoff i know was a big martial arts guy uh, i think he's got like a i don't know what degree but i know he's got at least a black belt in taekwondo or some form of karate um, um, according to according to him on his podcast he has a seventh degree black belt does he say in, in what art or just uh um, he probably did. I don't remember. Okay, because yeah, because I, 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 I want to say you're probably right with Taekwondo. Okay, so yeah, I just know he was a big martial arts guy, and then um, the because I remember around like the mid late nineties, yeah, in WCW you had a lot of those guys like uh, Glacier, um, you know, the Sub Zero, obvious Sub Zero ripoff. Uh, Mortis had the whole. He had kind of a martial artsy gimmick, and um, the who else was there? Ernest the Cat Miller when they brought him in. Mang, they always they always pictured him as being sort of a martial artsy guy, but and I don't know what where how he is outside the ring, but as far as I remember, inside the ring, he didn't really strike me as much of a martial arts gimmicky wrestler. I mean, other than like maybe the Tongan death grip. I don't remember him really using a lot of kicks or anything like that. Yeah, Ming was more of a in-your-face. He was a he was a brawler. He was not a martial artist that I would have considered a martial artist anyway. But now his working style kind of reminded me of uh, Steve Austin when he became the Attitude Steve Austin, right? Stone Cold era. But Ming, from what I've heard, is one of the most one of the people. There's like five or six wrestlers in history you really didn't want to mess with, inside or out. And he was one of them. That yeah, is I've true. Heard. I've read that as well. So, yeah. And so we've, well, we've talked about that whole martial arts gimmick. Uh, how would you define a martial arts gimmick in wrestling? So uh, we'll start with you, Marcus. Mm, it's evolved. It used to be straight up karate or judo um, until the UFC came out. And now it's guys who they either like Goldberg did portray themselves as a mixed martial artist or some cats who actually do have some MMA cred. It's unfortunate right right now in wrestling. Excuse me. The the two biggest mixed martial artist people that you've seen are Brock Lesnar, who's just a brawler. You know, I don't know what martial art he's supposed to know or if he knows any. And then Ronda Rousey, who again is just a straight up brawler. I don't think she's really got a i mean she i'm sure she had i know she has a judo background because she did judo for the u.s uh, olympics team but she doesn't use it in the ring in the ring i mean you'll see a judo throw here and there but she really doesn't use um and, and i don't know how big of a, an offensive martial art judo is because i know some martial arts are defensive some are offensive some mix and i don't know with judo i really don't i'm assuming it's some sort of a mixture of 
offense and defense, but that would be something for you guys to answer. The other, that's as far as mixed martial arts. Now, currently, as far as people that have martial arts backgrounds, you're looking at people like Asuka, who's from Japan. She um, uses it quite a bit. Kairi Sane, also from Japan. She uses it a lot. Um, Sin Cara, Alistair Black, um, Ali, a few of these guys. They're all the smaller. They're all the what we would have called cruiserweights at one time. These are the guys that are using martial arts in the ring at this point. The big guys aren't doing it anymore. They're not even attempting in most cases. So, I don't know. That's kind of my take on it. Um, but is what I don't know what qualifies as a martial artist wrestler. Um, you, you know, you go back to guys like Steve Blackman who walked to the ring with nunchucks. So at that time in, in history and at the age I was at that point, it was like, he must know karate. And, I mean, he does. But, you know, you, you're you selling to kids in a lot of ways. And wrestling is still kind of like that. I mean, it's the teenagers you're selling to now, but it's still kids you're selling to. So pretty much you give them something that makes you think karate or makes you think martial arts. And they're going to tag them as a martial artist or a martial art wrestler. Um, and I can't think of anybody off the top of my head right now that kind of gets that um, that billing just because of something they carry to the ring. Because for the most part, props have kind of gone away, which is okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because... But, um, yeah, here I go rambling again, so... <laughs> that's okay we do it all the time but yeah as far as how what i would consider a martial arts gimmick i mean I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of wrestlers that have some martial arts training but the, for me what really sets it up as a gimmick is when they actually regularly make use of it in the ring whether it's doing uh you know the the sidekicks or the karate style chops um also if they make a really big deal out of the fact that hey this wrestler you know, Noah's martial arts. Like again, Steve Blackman's a good example where, uh, you know, not only did he use the, a lot of the moves in the, you know, in the ring. And it, I don't think it was nunchucks. I, well, maybe he used it sometimes, but I always remember him coming out with the fighting sticks. Um, so, cause yeah, he did Taekwondo. Yeah, it depended. It depended. He did the, I saw him with the fighting sticks. I've seen him with nunchucks, kendo sticks. Yeah. Um, which now everybody grabs a kendo stick from under the ring and beats somebody up with it. <laughs> it it's, it's sad, but it's true. <laughs> yeah, and now as far as we were asking before about judo, uh, with it being more... I mean, I think that most martial arts can be used offensively, but just from my limited experience, I always saw judo as more defensive. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that someone who knows judo can't be dangerous in a fight. It's just... Since judo is primarily grappling based, usually with, and again, this is just my understanding of judo from what little I know about it. So anyone out, any listeners out there, if you know more about judo than I do, certainly feel free to correct me on this. But um, a lot of it really depends on what, you know, when someone actually grabbing you or trying to take you down. At least, I mean, I know in judo competitions, they use, I think usually in judo competitions, they start grappled with each other. Uh, but I said, I haven't watched too many judo matches, but I don't know, Marcus, what's your opinion on that? Would you classify judo as more offensive, defensive, or one of those ones where it really is appropriate for either? It's appropriate for either. 
because I only know from watching competition judo that they have uh, uh, they get penalized for for not being aggressive, so they have to keep going and trying for attacks constantly. Okay. But yeah, when we got into the 90s, again, that's where I think we really started to see uh, more people that had that martial arts gimmick where they were, the announcers were, you know, make, were always bringing up, oh, this person knows Kung Fu or this person knows Jiu-Jitsu. And again, just my personal opinion, but I'm almost wondering if a lot of that has to do with the increasing popularity of mixed martial arts and UFC, because I mean, really... When was the first UFC? Wasn't it like 94 or 95? 93, or was it 93 even? 93, I believe. Okay. So yeah, that's about when, but I think it took a couple of years before it really started to catch on. And I'm almost wondering if a lot of the wrestling promoters were just trying to maybe catch some of that audience because, you know, by this time, most people knew that wrestling was choreographed. You know, most of the time they're not trying to hurt each other. You know, they're basically people pretending to throw each other and push each other around. So when you had these people who, you know, they're billed as being a karate expert or a judo expert or a kung fu expert, it adds somewhat of a, you know, again, it, it adds that certain order of badassery to them. I don't know if that makes sense or not. It gives them an edge. Okay, because, yeah, the some of the other ones I remember, and see, unfortunately, I think a, a lot of the, the martial art wrestlers, it seems, most of them were really limited to the mid-card. I don't really know a lot of them that really, you know, got really high in the ranks. Um, I mean, I know, of course, when Dan Severin and Ken Shamrock uh, entered WWF, they were, I know they were given a bit of a push uh, WCW, I think probably the one that really was the most, uh, I'm trying to think of the best way to say this, the one that really rose through the ranks there for a while was Glacier until they started to bury him. Well, until they realized that Glacier couldn't wrestle. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, a forgotten wrestler that worked for both WCW and WWF or WWE, whatever you want to call it. And had a martial arts background, and he was a solid mid-card guy, though, was Tajiri out of Japan. And him, a lot like uh, the great Kabuki, used that, that mist, that except his was green instead of yellow. But he would use that mist to the eyes kind of thing. You know, that was kind of his gimmick, especially when he was heel. He was one of these wrestlers that went back and forth between face and heel, depending on what the storyline needed him to do. But... Um, you know, and as a kid, the first time I saw him do that mist, and the announcers are like, oh, my God, the guy's blind, bro. And I'm like, why would they let him do this? Right. You know, because I was maybe, I don't know, 14, 15, still pretty gullible when it came to that kind of thing. So, uh, but, yeah, I mean, you, I think you're right. Most martial art type characters were solid mid-card guys. Uh, you know, they had a decent following, but especially in the WWF, they weren't these big, burly, muscle-bound guys because that's what Vince likes. Vince likes these guys that look like they just came off the steroid truck and, you know, and it's all about power. In, in Vince's mind, you're not powerful unless you can see the power, you know, and that was a change from when his dad ran the WWF, 
what was it, WWWF? Yeah. Which was, you know, that's where you had your your hillbilly gyms and your, you know, these different characters that were just big dudes. Yeah, King Kong Bundy, uh, Andre the Yep, Andre the Giant, Big John Stud. Uh, so now, Marcus, do you, uh, from when we start to move into the 90s era, were there any martial art wrestlers that, uh, you know, that really stood out for you or that you really had, that you really followed? Not that I really followed because I was starting to get into MMA, but I thought some, one who used traditional martial arts pretty well as a vampiro, he had a lot of nice taekwondo kicks and he was able to utilize that and you know make an exciting in-ring style for himself okay yeah and i'd have to he still wrestles he still wrestles wow he's um i last i heard he was wrestling for lucha underground i'm just like dude you're like 90 stop (laughs) right (laughs) yeah and i mean for me oh i was I was a diehard Steve Blackman fan back in the day. It's like, okay, when he came out, because at the time, you know, in college, you know, I was studying Eskrima and, you know, in Kung Fu a lot. And so I was doing more martial arts back then. So, yeah, when he just came out to the ring and started twirling around those glow-in-the-dark fighting sticks, it's like, yeah, that's awesome. You know, and Steve Blackman was never, never one of the guys I really got into, but I can definitely see where somebody who has the martial arts background would be like, that's really cool. That's kind of like something that I recognize. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Steve Blackman was never my guy, but you know, I've always been a heel guy too, which is odd because Steve Blackman was always kind of a heel, but uh, I don't know. I just, uh, I always liked just the opposite of uh, of you, I really like the showy guys. I really like the really in-your-face characters. You know, your Roddy Roddy Pipers, your Jake the Snake Roberts, your Hogan, your Randy Macho Man. The guys that were bigger than life. And when I was a kid, I liked. And then if you were a bad guy on top of it, like Jake the Snake Roberts, done. Done. I'm I'm a fan. Yeah. So we're now when when we're talking about professional wrestlers, Marcus. Uh, did you usually did you were you like Chad, where you really liked the flashy in your face type guys, or did you like tend to like more of the uh, like the high flyers, the brawlers, the the more of the technicians? The technicians um, didn't matter if they were heel or a face. Um, I liked Dory Funk Jr. style. I liked um, like I said, Billy Robinson, Les Thornton, um, a couple of English guys. What did you think of a guy like Dean Malenko or Billy Kidman? I loved their style, especially Dean Malenko. Um, when I a man to... of a thousand holds. And right. I, I think he probably had them, too. Right. When I wanted to be a worker myself, that's the style I would have emulated. Cause he, he just, I just loved watching his style, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I like... I always liked the technicians, but I also always liked the high flyers. Like again, when when I saw W, when I started watching WCW, I liked the Luchador matches. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, just watching like they were Rey the best Mis- thing on WCW TV. Yeah, right. I mean, come on, watching like, uh, you know, watching people like Rey Mysterio Jr. and Hobbit, you know, uh, Juventud Guerrero and or Guerrero and Eddie Guerrero, you know, doing their frog splashes and moon salts and hurricanas. You gotta love that kind of stuff, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, like I said I I know, but I I do like the technician ones. Uh, Dean Malenko was always good, but when you talk about the whole lack of personality thing, I have to say probably 
one of the best things I remember seeing WWF do with uh, with uh, Blackman was teaming him with Al Snow because I remember they they were always trying to find Al Snow made it his his duty to find a gimmick for him and they had this one skit where they said I know let's travel through time solving mysteries and you know Al Snow sings this little theme song for him and then like Blackman just kind of walks away and. Uh, some guy dressed like Abraham Lincoln steps out of the door and he's like, he says something, he's like, oh, not now, Abe. Yeah, you know, the problem, I I have a real big problem when uh, companies waste talent. And Al Snow, in my in my estimation, other than when he was at ECW, was a wasted talent. The guy was so good, and they just made him this gimmicky, comic-y, you know, jobber. Especially in the WWE. And and I, that's the biggest problem I have with wrestling today is the the uh, the the roster is so deep that they misuse people, but they just put these people on the roster because they don't want somebody else to have them. That's true. And well, when we talk about wasting talent, let's talk about WWF's Brawl for All. Mm-hmm. So. We, you mentioned before the whole audience reaction thing, and yeah, that was one of the things that did not go very well over with the fans. And see, I always thought this is because I was doing a little research and you know, watched some videos on it. And uh, with YouTube, uh, there's a couple good videos out there. There's one where Steve Blackman shoots on uh, the Brawl for All, and there's also another one where Jim Cornette uh, talks about it as well. But... I mean, my first opinion when I saw it is that I thought they were trying to capitalize on WW, not WWF. That's that's their organization. They were trying to capitalize off a of UFC and 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 mixed martial arts, uh, because again, some of the the people they had in it were people who had, you know, they were martial art. They had martial art backgrounds. At least that's what they always pitched on the Titantron. Now, uh, the it was the brainchild of Vince Russo. And I think I read somewhere that he was inspired a bit more about the tough man contests as opposed to MMA. So participation in the brawl for all was strictly voluntary. Uh, the And one of the things that made some of these mid-carters want to uh, participate is you actually got real prize money if you won your, if you won your fight. You know, it's not like uh, your regular standard, you know, wrestling match where... You know, it doesn't matter whether you win or lose, your pay is the same. And I remember my friend Dan from the Radio Free Borderlands podcast. Uh, Chad, take a swig, take your drink. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Cheers. <laughs> no, that's a, uh, Marcus, I don't know if you've ever listened to much of my geekery in general episodes, but I, I sometimes I'll mention my friend Dan, and it's like, yeah, we're, one of these days I'm going to come up with a, a drinking game. And it's like, yeah, every time Al mentions Dan from Radio Free Borderlands, take a swig. But <laughs> he was, when we after we saw a couple episodes of that, he's like, the thing that's making me think this is real is like, you know who's doing really well in this? Bart Gunn. Yeah. There's a couple of other stories I've heard about what was happening behind the scenes. Uh, one of the inspirations for it is that uh, Bradshaw, he boasted that he bet he could take out any WWF wrestler in a brawl fight, in a, in a bar fight. And then also another reason they they wanted to do this is because they were hoping to win over Dr. Death Steve Williams, who's another one of those guys that, from what I understand, in 
in real life is actually a really tough guy. Again, like Meng, not someone you'd want to mess with. So the it was weird because there were like what three one minute rounds, and they measured like the number of punches and the number of takedowns you could do. And I remember Steve Blackman in this one YouTube video I saw where he was talking about it. Uh, one of the things that made it so tough is, I mean, he recalled the first match, it's like they gave him the brand new boxing gloves, where it's like you couldn't really curl your fists up properly. So he's like, yeah, imagine trying to take down someone when you can't you know, properly close your hands. So what are your thoughts on the Brawl for All? It was garbage. It was hot garbage. You know, it was, I always looked at it as they were trying to get those guys who would watch boxing to come watch wrestling. And I know they say it was voluntary, but I have read some autobiographies where people were kind of handpicked for this. Like um, JBL was one of them. They said, you're doing this. Or Bradshaw, as he was going by at the time. And the guy who won it all was not supposed to win it all. I can't remember if it was Bart Gunn that won it all or not, but yeah, Bart I want to say it was. What's that? Yeah, Bart Gunn is the one that ended up yeah. uh, winning. And then to, because he wasn't supposed to win the whole thing, to punish him, they set up this WrestleMania bout with him and Butterbean that lasted like three swings. I mean, Butterbean knocked him out in like 10 seconds. I think it was longer. I I know it was less than a minute. I think it was like 30-some seconds. But, yeah, it's like – and, I mean, what's the weight difference between those two guys? I mean, Butterbean's huge. Butterbean was, a, Butterbean was a big dude. But he had fast hands, you know, and he hit hard. It, it was – they kind of did it to kind of like bury Bart because they were like, you weren't supposed to win this. You knew you weren't supposed to win this. And here's your punishment. The WWF is well known for punishing guys for doing things that Vince didn't like or certain top guys didn't like. So, yeah. So, Marcus, what are some of your thoughts on the Brawl for All? Um, I found it interesting only um, stylistically because it. I was interested in seeing what the results were because, remember, that would be um, very close to the style of the old bare-knuckle boxers where you could punch a guy and take him down what was within, within the rules. Um, and remember back then when the UFC first came out, they experimented with a lot of formats. You have shoot boxing, which is similar to Muay Thai, um, except it allows all form of takedowns. And um, Sanshu Chinese kickboxing, which has more or less the same rules. So I just wanted to see what it looked like boxing and wrestling or judo takedowns that, you know, mixed in. Other than that, yeah, it was really kind of boring. And, uh, I didn't even watch that because I had just met my wife and we started hanging out and I went to go up and visit her. So you made the right choice. Right. <laughs> I remember but, being kind of impressed with Salvio Vega, though. I, I didn't think he could box, but when I saw him in the ring, he had a pretty smooth style. So, yeah. And I remember Steve Blackman was saying that for his match, he was going against Mark Merrow. And it's like, he focused on the takedowns because, you know, Mark Merrow is a former golden glove boxing champion. So he's like, yeah, you know, I'm not going to outbox, you know, Mark Merrow. So he he focused primarily on the takedowns. I mean, I thought it was an interesting idea, but yeah, part of the problem, and I think Jim Cornette uh, was saying this as well, part of the problem is you are taking these guys who are trained in a very specific style of athletics, 
you know, the, and again, I trust me. Yes. I know professional wrestling is choreographed, but I'll never say that professional wrestlers are not athletes. I mean, those guys got to be in good shape. And I mean, come on, you watch, you know, Ray Mysterio Jr. Get up on the top rope and do a, you know, a moonsault and tell me that doesn't take some athletic ability, but you know, they were out of their elements. They were trained for these choreographed, showy, flashy matches. Most of them weren't trained on how to properly box or do karate or do some of these other things. So I think that was part of the problem. And also, uh, I, I recall Steve Blackman also saying that one of the things that was challenging about this particular uh, tournament is that a lot of the guys who were participating, they were actually really good friends in real life. So it's like, it's not, I mean, it's one thing to put on sparring gloves and, you know, go a few rounds with your friend, not trying to hurt each other. But when you're in a situation where you're encouraged to hit as hard as you can and try to take him down to the ground, not always easy to do that if you're doing, you know, if it's a good friend of yours that you're fighting. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, it's just like anything. I mean, you never knew it back in the day when Fabe was still alive, but a lot of wrestlers are good friends. I mean, even now, I mean, you, you'll you'll watch two guys wrestle, and they, you know, one guy can be the heel, and the other guy can be the baby face. And but you know, as soon as they're done, they get back in the in the room, and it's gonna be like, you know, great match, man. We did this, we did that. Want to go grab a beer with this move? <laughs> but um, and and I kind of like that knowledge now. Knowing that, you know, Hulk Hogan and, and uh, I don't know, whoever, the Iron Sheik didn't go to the back and just keep beating the hell out of each other because they absolutely hated each other. No, they went and had a beer instead, you know. So. Yeah, well, you know, as you recall, I mean, one of the problems that, one of the things that uh, caused a bit of trouble for Jim Dugan, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, is uh, he got caught in a car with the Iron Sheik. Uh, when one of them was, I think, uh, Jim Duggan had was possessed some marijuana or coke or something like that, but it was at the time when they were supposed to be feuding and they were supposed to be hating each other. And it's like, okay, yep. but they were caught in a car together with drugs. Yeah, and they they both suffered for that. If you go watch a lot of wrestlers' careers, you can watch them ebb and flow. And usually, when they when they flow down to the bottom. You can find somewhere in that in that descend where they got in trouble for something, whether it was you know some sort of policy they broke, whether they got caught breaking kayfabe or whatever. You got punished for these things. I mean, the the biggest break of kayfabe, the thing that really started the downfall of the kayfabe, of course, was the you know the Madison Square Garden hug, where. Kevin Nash and um, Scott Hall, or Diesel and Razor Ramon, where there was their last match, they were going over to WCW, and Triple H and Shawn Michaels, and they're they're feuding. These four guys are feuding, but at the end of that show, they all went down to the ring and they shared a hug, and everybody's like, "What's going on here?" Because I mean, kayfabe was very much alive then, and of course, Shawn Michaels. As the story as I've heard it is, you know, you can't punish the two guys that are leaving and they're gone. You know, you can't punish yeah. those guys. You can't punish uh, Shawn Michaels because he was the hottest guy in the industry at the time. So if you watch Triple H's career right after that happened, 
he became a mid-card jobber for like a year <laughs> before he was back in the good graces of Vince and able to start climbing the ladder again. So, you know, repercussions are very real in, in backstage in the in that company. I don't know about other wrestling companies. I I don't know how that works, but they I mean, we I've read articles and I've seen interviews. There's is a wrestler's court in WWE, which right now the judge is the undertaker. He's the elder statesman. He's the guy that hands out the punishment. So they will actually take, if something happens backstage, they will get their lawyers, which are other wrestlers, either to represent them or go against them and whatever happened. They take it to the judge and he doles out punishment. And it can be anything from, you know, a minor infraction. You might have to buy a guy a case of beer or whatever to, you know, like, you don't get to ride the bus this time. You have to spend your own money to rent a car and go to the next show or whatever. It's just like, and that's crazy because if I did that at my job, I'd get fired real fast. <laughs> yeah, and, and another one of the things that uh, with Brawl for All, I remember Jim Cornette saying is he he was talk. He said he talked to Vince Russo afterwards, and he's you know he was like, well, you you know you dumb, shit, you just cost the WC. WWF a lot of money because a lot of the and again this is one of the things where you have to consider professional wrestlers athletes some of those guys actually got injured training for the brawl for all like that's one of the reasons Steve Blackman didn't make it very far as after his win over Mero he you know again he injured himself training I remember uh, JR mentioning something about that but he was because the ultimate goal was they wanted Steve Williams to win this and then that way at WrestleMania, he would be given a title shot against Steve Austin, which I don't know. I now are you f I'm not really too familiar with uh, Dr. Death. Uh, Marcus, did you are you familiar with him at all or? I think I might have seen him in the WCW, <clears throat> but he left for Japan pretty soon, pretty soon after that. And we didn't get to see him a lot. Yeah. Did did he wrestle much in the U.S. or is he primarily I mean, so is he still active? Do you know or? Steve Williams? Yeah. Highly doubtful, but keep talking and I'll I'll do a quick search. Okay. Yeah, cuz um I just remember JR really talking him up like he was this really, you know, again, real legit t legit tough guy. Um so that's why they wanted to do this brawl for all as a way for him to get out there and show that he was really uh you know that he really truly was this tough guy and why when, you know, Bart Gunn knocked him out you know, yeah, they weren't the, the the powers that be were not very happy. Well, I'll tell you this: I did a quick search here on on Steve Williams. I would say he's not active anymore since he died in two thousand nine. That would put a damper on pretty much anyone's career. Yeah, I did not know he died. Yeah, he had, it says uh, died of throat cancer. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So, I'll do it. yeah, <laughs> but yeah, because he, I know Jim Cornette was really, you know, angry at Vince Russo about that. And again, and again, it, you look at it, it just really wait, they really wasted Bart Gunn because, I mean, he had proven that he's a legitimate tough guy, you know, beating all these people in these, you know, semi realistic fights. Can't say truly realistic because there were some rules. But, and then what do they do? Well, they put him against Butterbean so he can get his, you know, his head punched off. And 
you know, I remember one of the, uh, I again, I think it was Jim in the Jim Cornette interview. I saw that he was saying part of the problem is while some of these, uh, you know, wrestlers did have boxing or martial art backgrounds, some of them were just so far removed from, you know, that particular type of training that it wasn't going to do anything for them in, in the brawl for all, or certainly not against someone like Butterbean. Because I know we've talked a little bit about this, Marcus, how there's a difference between being in fighting shape and being in, you know, good shape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to be training for a competition like that. You know, someone, if you're training for Muay Thai, you're not going to want to do, like, shoot boxing or sand shoe because you're not going to be expecting a takedown, not a wrestling takedown or a judo throw. Same thing with MMA. You're not going to want to train straight boxing if you're training for an MMA fight. Yeah. Now, this is one of those things where I think I've talked, I know I've talked to you two guys about it, and I've asked a couple other friends. And this is weird because I cannot find anything about this on the Internet. Maybe I'm going crazy. Maybe I'm misremembering something. But I seem to recall about around the same time that WWF was doing the brawl for all, WCW tried to do a martial arts division. And it wasn't something they pitched. They didn't make it like, you know, they didn't do the whole special brawl for all theme and, you know, do up the ring like a boxing ring. But if my memory serves me correctly, full disclosure, there's a chance it's not. But if my memory serves me correctly, the what set these matches apart is that you could only win by knockout or submission. So no pinfalls, and I'm not sure if it was disqualification or not. But I think they did this because they had a lot of mid-carters like Jerry Flynn. Um, well, Saturn at the time, I don't think he was quite a mid-carter. Uh, trying to think of some of the other guys. I think Canyon was in there. Glacier was in there. Uh, Ernest Miller. So again, these were guys that had these legitimate martial arts backgrounds. And they tried to get them into these these realistic-looking martial arts matches that were somewhat reminiscent of the shoot fights that were popular in Japan. Um, and it is one of those things that happened so quickly. If you, if you took a few weeks off from wrestling, you probably would have missed it. And my opinion, I, this is my speculation. I'm wondering if it's because they saw the fan reaction to Brawl for All and they, they took the hint and figured, okay, the fans weren't getting into this. They're not, if they want to watch stuff like this, they're going to go tune into UFC. But do you guys remember when they were trying to do that, uh, that martial arts division or am I going crazy? No, I remember hearing about it, but you're right. It kind of came and went before you knew it was there. Um, I don't, I couldn't recall a match of any sort, you know, but, um, it sounds like you got the light, right list of guys, though, you know, with your with, – with the guys you had mentioned there, you know, Chris Canyon and Saturn and all those guys. Um, you know, it was uh, – it would have been neat, but obviously I don't think I, – I must have missed that. I don't know – do you know what year about you're thinking this would have been? The same as Brawl for All? Like, 98, yeah. I would say. Yeah, because I think to rem- – I, I seem to remember it being around the same time as Brawl for All. Because my roommate in college at the time, Brian, uh, again, who's a huge wrestling fan, I asked him about it a while ago, and he couldn't remember it either. Um, I mean, he might just vaguely remember it, but 
uh, like I said, he, because what we would do is we had our Monday night tradition, you know, where we'd watch, you know, watch the Monday Night Wars and, you know, flip back and forth between uh, WCW and WWF. But, uh, you know, so it's quite possible we may have even missed some of the matches. But I, like I said, I swear, I seem to recall WCW trying to do a martial arts division. And as you were saying, Chad, it's kind of a shame because they did have some, you know, some talented guys in that particular group. Right. Because, I mean, I remember seeing one match of Goldberg against Jerry Flynn. And, and again, Jerry Flynn does, he is a, I know he is a Taekwondo or a, a karate instructor. And I think he's had some training in grappling as well. I don't know if it's like judo or jujitsu. Oh, okay. But yeah, he actually had a really good match against Goldberg, which unfortunately he lost because at this time he was still pretty much a mid-carder. And I think this was at that time when they were doing the whole Goldberg undefeated streak. Yeah, you know, the 800 and, no, what was it, uh, 180-some bouts before he lost. But they, it was never that many. And in fact, Goldberg will say it's not that many. But what they would do is like, you'd go away for a week and come back and he'd have another win and be like 11 wins more than the week before. And it's like, wait a second. Of course, you never paid attention to it at the time because the hype was so big and and the announcers were so into it. You just kind of like, and all of a sudden he was like 180 undefeated. And it's just like, wait, what? It's only been around for nine months. How is this possible? You know? And then the next week he was at like, you know, 206. It's like, okay, so he won 20 some matches in the last week. Wow. They must really be working this guy. So Marcus, do you, so it seems like you, you you vaguely remember this particular thing they were trying to do or the martial arts. I, I remember it being talked about and tossed around, but I never saw it. Yeah. So did you, what were some of your, uh, favorite martial arts gimmick wrestlers in WCW. Cause again, it seemed that WCW tried to push him a little bit more than WWF did. And again, I think just my, my guess probably because, you know, Bischoff being a, a martial arts practitioner himself. Like I said, it depends on um, semantics where you're talking about martial art, because like I said, the te- technicians to me seem to be as much martial artists as people who would practice Asian standup martial arts. Some guys were even jobbers who I thought had legit skill, like Norman Smiley would put a hold on someone out of nowhere, and even though he'd end up losing the match and getting uh, getting wasted, you could see that the cat had legit skills. I don't know. I mean, I, I haven't paid much attention to wrestling in, like, probably around 17 years or so. Uh, I think I started to get out of wrestling around 2001, 2002. So since – now, Mar- Chad, I know you're still in the rest- big wrestling uh, yeah. So, Marcus, do you still watch wrestling on a regular basis, or? Um, semi-regular, but only the lucha shows that because we get the Spanish language networks and um, Zero One from Japan and Noah Pro Wrestling from Japan. Those are the two I are three mainly I stick to. Yeah. So, with uh, other than because I know the big MMA type fighters in wrestling now would be probably Ronda Rousey and and Brock Lesnar. Uh, are there any others or? Yeah, there's a few that I know of. Um, she goes by the ring name Sonia Deville. She is a legit uh, in, in brought in from MMA. Um, I'm trying to think if I can remember what her real name was. 
or is, I suppose, still her name. Um, let me look that up quick. But anyway, um, that's the only other one I can think of off the top of my head is Sergeantville. And maybe then if I look up her name, you guys could tell me. Her real name is Daria Baranato. Um, but anyway, she, uh, she was, a she was a MMA and her record was, oh, she did three, three matches. She had two wins, one loss. So one win by knockout, one win by submission and a loss by decision. Okay. So she had a, she had a short MMA career. Three more fights than I had though. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> hey, that's, uh, that's still one more. That's one more than CM Punk had. <laughs> yeah, because I remember hearing about that CM Punk try too. Because uh, I know, yeah, occasionally you do hear about wrestlers who do try to transition from uh, from wrestling to UFC, and in the case of Brock Lesnar, uh, transition back. And then, yeah, and I know Severin and and Shamrock were probably the the major UFC guys who went to WC or went to professional wrestling. Uh, did did they didn't they someone try to get like Hoist Gracie to sign up with wrestling as well or I thought I heard I don't know I might be maybe I'm misremembering it's possible. something possible but... I mean the WWE will sign anybody with a recognizable name I mean they signed Ronda Rousey to a to a I think a three year contract based on the fact of her name she knew zero wrestling you know they taught her and she took to it I do have to give her credit for that from her very first match to when she got injured at WrestleMania this year, world of difference. I mean, she took to it. She learned the the art and how to do it. And she still wasn't great because she was still only a year into it. But the the way she was progressing, I got a feeling that when she comes back, she will just continue to progress. But um, in, a, in a lot of cases, like Brock, he, he just goes out there and he has, an, he has a MMA match. I mean, you know, our UFC match. He just goes out there and beats somebody until they can't stand up anymore. So, I don't know. I, Do you know I who trained Ronda Rousey? What's that? Do you know who trained Ronda Rousey? As far as wrestling? Mm-hmm. Uh, not off the top of my head, but I have this thing called the internet, so give me two seconds okay. and I'll tell you. Ultimo Dragon, that's another one that I wanted to uh, mention before, because I remember he did, uh, he did a lot of martial arts type moves, like he had this kicking combo he did that was pretty cool, and... I remember, like, originally his gimmick was Ultimo Dragon, he, like, the last dragon. Like, he was supposed to have been the last student of Bruce Lee, but then I, I guess they eventually abandoned that part of his gimmick. But he was still a good wrestler. Yeah, I consider Ultimo Dragon more of a luchador than a Japanese wrestler because he uh, learned his trade in the wrestling in Mexico. So he's got more of a high spot wrestler than he was a hard, a stiff style wrestler from Japan. Okay. Okay, so you asked who uh, Ronda Rousey was trained by. She was actually mm-hmm. trained by a panel of people. Uh, Brian Kendrick, who was a great cruiserweight in his day. Goldust, Kurt Angle, Natalia Neidhart. So she's got okay. some good people behind her. Okay. <laughs> Freaking Goldust? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he's not Goldust anymore because he's yeah. another one of these guys that jumped from WWE to AEW, so... He now wrestles as, uh, what's his name, Rhodes, uh, Dustin? Dustin Rhodes. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm not saying he was a bad wrestler. It's just he doesn't quite, he doesn't usually jump up to my, you know, jump. I mean, he was more known for his appearance and his gimmick, how he looked kind of like the whole walking, uh, I don't know. Yeah, he was weird. I mean, I, I don't know if you ever saw the Bret Hart um, Wrestling with Shadows documentary. I know he was, talking no. about, he was talking about Goldust. He's like, you know, he presses a certain homophobic nerve and he presses it really hard. But backstage, he's just a hick with the country music and the boots. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, he was kind of weird. As, I, don't, I don't hate the guy as a wrestler or, or per, you know, character, but he just was kind of weird. But, yeah, it... Um, I don't know. So, any final thoughts uh, about the whole idea about wrestling and martial arts? Well, here's something I'd like us all to do here before we leave is let's talk our favorite wrestlers. Just for a second, like, this is what I'd like to know. Everybody's favorite face, favorite heel. I don't care what generation of wrestling you're talking or what promotion you're talking, but your favorite face, your favorite heel and then, like, maybe your favorite uh, tag team. Okay. Uh, Marcus, you want to go first on this one? I need a moment to think. Okay. Heel would have to be um, someone you guys can, um, if you don't know him, you can look him up. He was really hated in Texas in the early days. His name was Gino Hernandez. And the reason why I like him so much is because um, he was yelling some obscenities at some women at, at when I was really little and we went to a show. And my mom gave him this really dirty look, and he broke cape after just a second. And, you know, his eyes were kind of, like, apologetic. So he backs away, and he starts, you know, yelling at some girls in a different section. So that's a good memory of mine. Um, face, I would have to say, probably Rey Mysterio in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, tag team? Hmm. Tag team is a harder one. I liked, um, I don't know, I was a kid, so I liked Jim Brunzel and Greg Gagne in the early 80s when we first moved here yeah okay. for, for me i'd have to say probably my favorite all-time favorite heel rick flair because even when he was a heel he was still likable he always had that sense of style um you know when he had that cool nickname you know the dirtiest player in the game so he's probably one of my favorite heels uh favorite face wrestler I would again. I would probably have to say Steve Blackman, uh, just because I said the whole martial arts gimmick. I really did like that. But if we're going before that, I uh, yes, I admit I I was a big fan of Hulk Hogan back in the day. And There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, it, I I was a kid in the '80s. I was kind of legally obligated to like Hogan. But uh, anyways, and then as far as tag team wrestlers, probably the Midnight Rockers, the original version with uh, Jannetty and Michaels. That's a good one. Okay, so for me, my favorite heel of all time has got to be Rowdy Roddy Piper. Just hands down, I liked him. I liked his style of being a heel. There were some things he did that I didn't think was really cool, like the one WrestleMania where he painted half his body black. But, you know, we can we can look beyond some of those things. Um, my favorite face of all time, this is probably a left... I'm sure you've both heard of him, but Junkyard Dog. Oh, yeah. Loved Junkyard Dog. He'd come JYD. out with like, a big chain on, and he'd dance in the audience, and he'd bark, and it was just, I loved it. I thought it was a great, I mean, at the kid time, I was a kid. I just thought he was really cool. But it, in retrospect, the gimmick is amazing, too, you know. Favorite tag team. 
that was actually a hard one. I've been thinking about this for about a day and a half now. And I've got to save, I think my favorite tag team was Demolition. Axe and Smash. They held the, the tag team titles for the longest time in WWE slash WWF history until the New Day just broke it not too long ago. And then they dropped them like, they, they, they beat the record by like four days and then they dropped the titles at the next pay-per-view. And I was just like, why? But I always liked them because they were, they were, I mean, their name said what they did. They just beat the hell out of you. And they weren't good guys. They weren't bad guys. They were just a team that was out there to beat you up and take <laughs> the titles. That was their whole goal. I mean, I have to like, I did like the Acolyte Protection Agency, you know, part of their gimmick. Oh, it's yeah. like on the back of the shirts, you know, don't take this ass whooping personally. <laughs> so <laughs> another question, I think we've talked about this before, but okay. Favorite wrestling match or favorite feud. So if if, if we look at like all the different matches and feuds over the years, uh, what one would you say stood out for you? And I know I've told this one before, but. It was back in the AWA years. Uh, there was a feud with Nick Bockwinkle against Kurt Hennig for the AWA World Heavyweight title. And it was just perfectly scripted because at the time, you know, Kurt Hennig, he was the, you know, he was the the young up and coming newcomer. And then you had Nick Bockwinkle, the seasoned pro and they had this series of of good technical matches because both the guy these guys were known for being very you know technical very proficient wrestlers and they had a lot of them where you know they would go to a time limit draw or another thing that they would do is you know there would be a a match where for the last you know like in the last you know minute or so 30 seconds like Kurt Hennig would slap a submission hold on Bachwinkel and, you know, of course, he'd be sitting there, you know, they you know Nick Bachman would be like, ah, you know, like in pain. And then the announcer would be like, you know, can the champ withstand the pain of this figure four leg lock for the next 10 seconds? And then it would. And, you know, it was always billed as though there was a great deal of professional respect among the two. And they ended it with Hennig winning the title because Larry Zabisco handed him a foreign object that he used to KO Nick Bachwinkle. So, I mean, it was a little depressing at the time, but still looking back at it, it's like, yeah, I mean, it was, I think, a good way to turn someone heel because they really built this guy up as his fan favorite. Then it's kind of, it's not quite as bad as I think is what they did with Hogan and the NWO, but anyways, so, uh, so next who, uh, favorite match or feud? Well, I got a couple feuds that I, that I really like, and one I'm just going to kind of glean over, and then I'll talk about the other one. So, first one that came to mind was Roddy Piper versus Jimmy Schnucka. They had like an 18 month feud that started. I don't know if it started exactly then, but started around the time that Roddy Piper hit him in the head with a coconut. I've seen an interview with Piper that coconut was not supposed to shatter, and it was a real coconut. So think about how hard he had to hit him in the head to do that. Wow. So, but anyway, my I think my favorite one was in the WCW days, Rey Mysterio Jr. versus Kevin Nash. It was when Rey became the giant killer. It was for the WCW heavyweight title, and he he had to go through, Rey had to go through all these other guys, you know, uh, uh, Scott Hall and some of the other guys, but he eventually got the big old Kevin Nash, and they had 
you know, Kevin Nash wrestled for about 10 years too long. He had horrible knees and his matches always looked kind of bad because of that. Because he couldn't really work anything where he spent a lot of time on his knees or anything like that because they were just shot. And, you know, he's a big guy. He's 340 pounds or whatever and seven feet tall. And that's a lot of that's a lot of strain on your knees. They're going to go bad. But him and Mysterio, Mysterio was small enough that they could work in such a way that he made Kevin Nash look good every match they had. And then when it all came to a head at the pay-per-view and Ray took the title off of Kevin Nash, I was I was a happy fanboy because I'm a big Ray fan as well. Oh, yeah. Ray Mysterio Jr. is amazing. And the way that they work these two guys, you know, one guy who's six foot one and one guy who's seven foot one, and they made it work. It's it's amazing. I don't think Nash is quite seven one, but he's he's a big guy too. Yeah. And it's just I don't know, that's probably my favorite one. That entire series of matches they had up to that payoff at the pay per view. So Okay, so Marcus, uh favorite feud or match? Favorite feud would probably be Ultimo Dragon and Billy Kidman in the cruiserweight division. They put on some work, some matches that to this day were some of the best matches I've ever seen. Um, favorite match would probably be, hmm, oof. I won't say favorite match, favorite style of matches. I used to love when, um, whenever Cherry Funk and, um, what's his name? Cactus Jack would have the hardcore legends matches. Oh yeah. Those were some of my favorite to watch. Yeah, and Billy some of Kidman, the bloodiest matches I've ever seen. Even though I know in Japan they have like razor wire matches and stuff. Yeah, and see, I don't even really like that style, but the way they did it, it just took it to another yeah. level. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and and Billy Kidman is another one of those guys who I think is uh probably one of the more underrated wrestlers in, um, you know, in WCW history. I mean, I'm not sure if he's still active or if uh you know, what happened to him after now, did he, did he move over to WWE after they bought out WCW or did, uh, yeah, did he, he, move did, else? But he did, but he got really kind of, I mean, a lot of the guys from WCW, they, they came over and then they were just buried because they had worked for WCW. Yeah. I didn't like so. the whole, yeah. With Billy Kidman though, I didn't like the sick boy gimmick he had when, you know, he, when was, he was with part the of Ravens, Ravens, Ravens locker. Yeah. I, I mean, I, but before that, I mean, well, he was still a good wrestler afterwards, but I mean, still, I just, I think I, I liked his gimmick better before he decided to go all emo, uh, with Raven. <laughs> See, I was a fan of Raven. I thought he was a good wrestler. I thought he was a good technical wrestler. Um, and he could improvise very well. The character, yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a Edgar Allan Poe fan. So I kind of enjoyed the gimmick too, but. When they started getting into the whole Ravens flock and the the Ravens nest or whatever, when they would sit in the front row, I thought it was a little too much. Mm-hmm. But I always gave Raven a lot of credit because he was a pretty darn good wrestler. I thought. Yeah. So, any final thoughts for today's episode? Wrestling's awesome. <laughs> martial arts are awesome too, but I would have to say martial arts are more awesome than wrestling. We can all have our own opinions. Yeah, you can have your wrong opinion. That's right. It's America. I can have whatever wrong opinion <laughs> I want. So, yeah. Any final thoughts for today's topic, Marcus? Um, nope. I think we covered it all. Thanks. Yep. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, actually, one other question we 
Favorite type of gimmick match? Ooh. Or another question. Favorite type of gimmick match and stupidest gimmick match you think you've seen? Stupidest gimmick match is pretty much any women's match in the Attitude Era. Whether it was pudding or jello or in a swimming pool. Absolutely disrespectful of women and just usually very, very horrible. Favorite gimmick match? That's kind of a toss-up, man. I really like the uh, the leather strap matches um, because the guys working those could always make it look so brutal. And obviously, you know, it wasn't – they weren't hanging them by their necks from the ropes, you know, kind of thing. I, so I really like those. And and I tended to like the um, – like the cage matches, not the hell in the cell match, which is something different, but like the cage matches, you know, the old style four steel cage mm-hmm. sides and they just clip them onto the, to the turnbuckles and go. I was kind of enjoyed those. I think my favorite cage match had to be King Kong Bundy versus Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania one. Okay. So Marcus, uh, least in fa- uh, favorite gimmick match and least favorite gimmick match. I thought um, Chad had a good point with the women's matches back in that era. Um, I would also move um, the little people matches. Um, you know, I, I thought those were pretty offensive. They used to still have those a lot in Mexico, and I kind of tune out whenever those are on. Um, favorite gimmick match, I, I think it would probably have to be, I, I don't remember exactly what they call it, but Stan Hansen did a lot of them with a, uh, with a cowbell and the rope. Um Brahma Bull rope matches. That's it. Yep. Yep. Those were great. Where you had to beat your your opponent down and then touch all four turnbuckles to win. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I would have to say probably my all-time favorite gimmick match. Give me a good old-fashioned battle royal. I I mean, I just something about watching a bunch of guys in there slobber-knocking each other is awesome. Those steel cages are always fun as well, especially when you get the guys that, you know, climb up and jump off of it and the cage and do all these goofy things. Um, as far as least favorite, uh, oh man, I mean, there's just been so many dumb gimmick matches. It's hard to, it's hard to pick one, but there was some WWF match, like a diaper match where, cause I remember seeing a clip of it where like once Sean Wiltman, uh, the one, two, three kid at the time, uh, he lost the match and I guess he got knocked out and they put him in a diaper or something. And it's like, okay, that's just stupid. I so, mean, there's yeah. a lot of stupid gimmick matches out there. Hair versus hair, mm-hmm. you know, mask versus mask. Anything yeah, where but... it's like, well, I don't know. Yeah, the, I don't... the mask versus mask matches. I mean, as far as I understand from like uh Lucha Libre, those are actually pretty significant because at least in they ring. Are. Yeah, because, you know, the mask is your personality. And um, I, I mean, you might know a little bit about more of this than, than I do, Marcus, because I know you're, like I said, you watch the, you're big into watching the Lucha Libre. But uh, mm-hmm. if listening to Tear, um, oh, what was the one, uh, Mike Tenay, the WCW announcer who was pitched as being this expert in Lucha Libre, uh, from what I, if I learned anything from him, I guess it's like, you know, losing your mask in Mexican wrestling was you know, that was a, that was a big blow against your honor or something like that. So yeah, still this day. Yeah. Yeah. And when WCW forced Ray to lose the mask, I thought that was 
horrible. Yeah, and I remember Juventud Guerrero, like, uh, that was another one. Because I think, wasn't it, Chris Jericho had this series of matches where he, uh, you know, it was all based on him beating luchadors and taking their masks. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Well, we went into overtime on that one. So before we right. end today's show, so Chad, uh, you, our listeners got to hear you talk to us. So, if, But if people want to hear you talk some more, where can they find you? Uh, they can find us uh, on eclecticmediaproject.com. And from there, you can find all of our different uh, podcasts and links to them. And uh, everything's right on that page there. So, yeah, eclecticmediaproject.com. Well, uh, with that said, I think, okay, last call here. Any uh, last final thoughts? One, two, three, ring the bell. Okay, we're done. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't think of any better way to uh, end a show about wrestling. So, good night, everybody. It was a dark and stormy night, and the hosts of the Queens of the Damned podcast had just gathered around the fire with their tomes of forgotten lore. Don't forget the wine! And a lot of wine much of which had already been imbibed. For her part, Miranda was discussing A history of Frankenstein, from its conception to Karloff's beloved role as the monster. And Rachel would continue with Vincent Price. Like everything about Vincent Price. And as the fire died down, Nikki would conclude the evening With something related to gothic literature, probably. You know me so well. Like listening to three women debate about the cultural significance of the horror genre? And also axe murders. I do love a good old timey axe murder story. Then Queens of the Damned, a horror podcast, is the show for you. Find us on Apple Podcast, Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere you can download a podcast. Visit us at Queens of the Damned Podcast.wordpress.com, QOTDpodcast.podbean.com. Or email us at qotdpodcast at gmail.com for more details about our monthly horror giveaways. Stay spooky! You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.